turn with me in your copy of God's Word this morning to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, as we finish our time this morning in the Lord's Prayer, as we work through the Sermon on the Mount. And one of the things that you learn as a parent is that there's kind of this, on one hand, and on the other hand, type deal with, with your children, especially smaller children, is that on one hand, you understand that they're very needy, right? On the other hand, they think that they're not at times. Well, there are times where this all converges. I, I'll never forget, and this child will remain unnamed for the sake of my kids, but uh, they're already looking, going, uh-oh. But I'll never forget one of our children when they were small, I was... Uh, watch, I don't know where Steph was, I don't remember, but um, they had gone to the restroom, and all of a sudden I hear them screaming, help, help, you know, and I don't know what's happening, you know, I run in there, and this child had uh, fallen in the toilet, and was stuck, and they needed help getting out, you know, and in that moment, there was no doubt that they needed help, they knew they were needy, and I knew that they were needy, and I guess I can pat myself on the back, I got them out, you know. Is a, a parenting win in that moment for me. Kids are needy. Kids are needy. We think about the Lord's Prayer and we come before our Heavenly Father and the reality is, is that we all likewise are needy. And we may not realize it. We may realize it. There are times where it's very close at heart. There's times where we know we are needy, that we are crying out for help. And there are times that we operate as though we're independent that we operate as though we're not needy, that, that we can handle everything on our own. Well, as we look at the Lord's Prayer tonight, or this afternoon, we look at a section where he leads us to pray to him in our need, to seek his provision. You see, the thing that, that we have to understand as God's people is, is first, we are ever-changing and so we need the help of the one who never changes, the one who is immutable. We are weak. We need the help of the one who is strong, the one who is all-powerful, the one who is omnipotent. We lack wisdom, don't we? We need the help of one who has perfect wisdom, who is omniscient, all-knowing. We need to seek his help. And we are sinful. We need the help of the one who is holy, and merciful and gracious. And so we draw near to him in our time of need. So we're going to read the Lord's Prayer again, starting in verse 9. We come to the three verses that we'll study this morning, verse 11 through 13. We'll look at these verses and we'll be brought to three important questions. Last week I shared four important questions, and this week we'll see three questions that come out of verses 11 through 13. But let's read these verses together, the Lord's Prayer, beginning in verse 9. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You'll, you'll remember last week, verses 9 and 10 I share with you there's three requests there, and those requests express our desire for our Father's exaltation. It's a longing that his name would be magnified, that his kingdom would come, and that his will would be done. 
Verses 11 through 13, instead of they go from expressing a desire for God's exaltation, verse 11 and 13 express our dependence on God's provision. It's an expression that we are needy and we need the Lord's help. Now, some of you, you get to the end of verse 13 and it stops. And you say, well, wait, wait, what about for thine is the kingdom and the glory and the power forever, amen? Where did that go, right? Well, if you, if you take note, you, you may find in your translation, it, it may be included in there, but it'll have brackets around it. Or it may be in a footnote. In my Bible, there's a footnote in the bottom, and it says some manuscripts add, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen. Well, why, why is that so? The reason that is, is because that statement is not found in the earliest and most trustworthy Greek manuscripts. And so some scholars would say that it was probably put in when the Lord's Prayer, this model prayer, began being used in corporate worship. And in that time in the early church, it was very customary to have a doxology at the end, to have a concluding statement about the glory of God. And so the early church put that in at the end as a way to lift high the name of God, to glorify Him as a doxological ending. It's certainly not unbiblical. Really, it's based off of you, right? You can look at this later, but First Chronicles 29, 10 to 13 is where it's derived. Most likely, it's just derived from the end of David's prayer as he comes and prays for the people towards the end of his life. And so it's certainly not doctrinally wrong or doctrinally bad. There's nothing in error about it or a reason you shouldn't say it or you shouldn't look to it. But the reason it's distinguished is, it's, again, it's not in the earliest and most reliable Greek manuscripts. Now, as a side note, what I would tell you and encourage you with this is this, is that this should encourage you with the veracity, the truthfulness, the trustworthiness, the reliability of Scripture. It should do that because when you think about that, you see that the translators take the utmost care to make sure everything is clear and right and they translate with the utmost of transparency. So this shouldn't cause you to doubt or worry about Scripture. No, instead, it reminds you that there's nothing to hide in Scripture. There's nothing to hide. It should boost your confidence in the Scriptures we have and study as the Word of God. We look at verses 11 through 13. I would say the key truth that I would want you to take away this morning is this, is that we are needy and God is not. We are needy and God is not. We are, we are the ones who are in need of him. He does not need us. He is the great king, the sovereign God over all things. And so we come to him seeking provisions. We come to him requesting provision. What we're going to see is we're going to th- see three requests for provision. In verse 11, we're going to see a request for provision of our physical needs. In verse 12, a, provision, a request for provision of our relational needs. And then in verse 13, a request for the provision of our moral needs. So we want to just look at those three things this morning. First, three prayers we lift to our Father. The first one is a prayer for provision of our physical needs in verse 11. A, prov- a prayer for the provision of our physical needs. Give us this day our daily bread. Now, the early church father, Augustine, when he read this, he interpreted it as uh, he spiritualized it and said, well, the, the bread must be the word of God or Jesus himself, who is the bread of life. 
And so he spiritualized this. But as interpreters and theologians through the ages, through the church, have gone on since the time of Augustine, they understand that there's really no need to spiritualize the text. There's nothing in the Greek that would lead you to spiritualize this and make it more than what it is. It is simply a request that God would provide for our physical needs, our physical needs. Now, we need to recognize this. In the day that this was spoken, right, people lived day to day hoping that the next day they would have their needs met. It was something that they, they hoped they would have the food that they needed and their basic needs provided for. I would say even today, we need to recognize that the majority of the world's population lives the same day to day, anticipating the basic needs being met that they have. Many of us live in a demographic which that's not the case. We, we are used to going into our cupboards and, and not opening them and thinking, can I eat? But instead opening the cupboard and thinking, what will I eat? Right? That's the demographic of many that are gathered today. But that's not the case for everyone around our world today. It's not the case for those who were hearing Jesus teach that. And what we need to understand is this, is that we need to recognize that we are not absolutely, completely independent and self-sustaining. None of us are. We all live dependent on God for his physical provision. I would remind you of James 1.17. James wrote, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Every good and perfect gift we have is from the Lord. For many, that is the provision of a job in which you can provide for your needs and care for you, care for your family. So the simple fact that that we have cupboards that might be full and we have provision, we're not going, I don't know what I'm going to eat tomorrow. Many of us are in that situation. That does not mean that we do not need the Lord and we do not look to him for the provision of our physical needs. I would say there's also many of you here gathered today that you know well the times of life where a job has been lost or physical tragedy struck and you went from a life where you were comfortable and it seemed as though you quote unquote needed nothing to all of a sudden relying on others to supply your needs, praying to the Lord that you would have what you needed, that you would have the food you would need, that you could feed your family, that you could clothe your family, that you could make ends meet, that you could pay your bills. All that can happen in the snap of a finger. Steph and I often reflect on our early years of marriage. Just a couple weeks ago, we were pulling out a Kroger, and and I I don't remember, we were talking about a situation that we had been made aware of, and and we just paused for a minute and said, how have we made it this long? I don't know how we've done it. We didn't do it is the reality. God provided for us and continues to provide for us. And it's healthy for us as a couple to look back and to remember the ways that God provided for us in amazing ways early on in in our married life when we really should not have been able to make ends meet. I still can't go back and go, oh, this is how everything worked out. I don't know the answer to those things outside of the fact that God provided for us. And so this, this request here is a reminder that we are to look to God for the provision of our physical needs. Here's what it teaches us. Here's what it teaches us. God cares for our physical needs. He cares. He cares. Don't miss the importance of that. That, that statement tells you what? It tells you that the God who is holy, sovereign, and transcendent, 
right? He transcends above all things. He reigns over all things. He's the great and mighty king. He is also compassionate and merciful and caring and imminent. So this God who is transcendent above all things is also imminent. He is near. He is involved in your life and cares intimately for you. The, the passage of scripture that we, we had this week, Psalm 103, 13 to 14. Do you remember how it ended? As a, as a father shows compassion to his children. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Why? Why would he do that? Well, it says, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. God remembers our estate. He remembers who we are. He remembers our frailty. He remembers our need. And he cares for us as a compassionate father. And so we, we come to him and we look to him in our time of need. I want to ask you, just turn to Proverbs 30 for a moment. Proverbs 30, verse 7 to 9. Proverbs about halfway through the Old Testament. After the book of Psalms, if you flip and you find Psalms, then, then Proverbs is right after the book of Psalms. If you turn to Proverbs 30, I want you to, to hear what Agur writes here. Proverbs 30, verse 7 through 9. We think about coming to the Lord and asking him for, for provision of our needs. Listen to what he writes. He says, this is Proverbs 30, verse 7 to 9. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither pov poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Now listen to the reasons. Lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and still and profane the name of the Lord. So, so why do we come to the Lord? We come to the Lord and we ask him for the provision of our physical needs. And here, I think Agar is so insightful. He says, provide for me the food that is needful for me. Feed me. Give me what I need. But he says, just give me what I need. He's not coming here saying, give me everything I want. And that's not what, what Jesus leads us to pray in, in, in uh, Matthew 6 either. He doesn't say, Lord, give me everything I want. I, I want everything. I want this and that and that. Just give me all my wants. No, he says, seek the Lord for your daily bread. It is what you need to survive your physical needs. And, and, and Agur makes a wise statement. He, he says, give what is needful for me. On the one hand, give what's needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Is that not the state of so many in our day? They have all they need plus all they could want. And they deny the Lord. They deny him and just say, who's the Lord? Who's the Lord? Look at me. I'm a self-made man. I've got all I need. I've got my retirement laid out. I've got a job. I've got all of my vehicles and I've got my nice house and I've got all my clothes and all the food I could ever want. Who's the Lord? I've got all I need. Or on the other hand, you've got that, but then he says, but, but provide what's needful for me lest I be poor and still. So, so don't leave me lacking that I would be in a place that, that I would need something and I don't have what I need and so I would seek to steal it and to gain it by, by lying and deception, thievery, and thus profane the name of the Lord. That those who would not have their provisions met, not have their physical needs met, would seek to do so in an underhanded way, in a way that profanes the name of the Lord. So Agar says, give me what I need. 
lest I deny him or lest I profane him. Just give me what I need, Lord. And that's our prayer that Jesus teaches us there in Matthew 6 is, is Lord, give us this day our daily bread, our daily sustenance, our daily needs. Meet our needs, God, in your grace. We are to daily rely on God to supply our needs. So here's the question that brings about. The first question that I want to put before you to wrestle through is, do I recognize God's provision of my needs? Ask yourself that question this week. Do I recognize God's provision of my needs? Or do I live as though I've provided everything myself, that I'm a self-made man, that I need not God's provision, his sustenance? Do I recognize God's provision of my needs? Question one. So here's the second request we come to in verse 12. The first one was provision of our physical needs. The second one here is provision of our relational needs. Verse 12, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now we need to note here when we come to verse 12, that verse 12 is the only part of the prayer that Jesus comes back to and elaborates on and makes a a particular point about in verses 14 and 15. In verse 14 and 15, he, he comes back to verse 12 He says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So he comes back to to make a clarifying statement here. He comes back to, to remind us and clarify what he means when he says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. He informs us more of the importance of this forgiveness in our lives, the forgiveness we have with God and the forgiveness that we show to others. Listen, the reality is that we are a sinful, broken people whose sin breaks our relationship with the Lord and those around us. Forgiveness is needed from the Lord. Forgiveness is needed through the Lord. But as we come to this verse, this is very, very important when we look at this verse. We need to remember the context of the prayer. Go go back to the beginning of of chapter five. Who is Jesus teaching in the Sermon on the Mount? Not a trick question. Okay, the disciples, thank you. Man, I was gonna get really worried if you guys hadn't got that by now. He's teaching the disciples, right? He's teaching his followers, believers, those who have been adopted. When he comes to the Lord's Prayer, he's teaching those who have the privilege, the right to bow before God Almighty and say, our Father. He's teaching, remember we talked about adoption, the address, our Father in heaven, that we have the right, the privilege, the blessing to call him Father because we've been adopted, we've been redeemed, we've been saved. It's who we are before him. So he's not teaching us a sinner's prayer for salvation, right? He's not teaching us a, a prayer to pray that we might be saved. No, he's preaching or teaching us the prayer of the saved. He's teaching us the model for how we as his children should pray. Now, here's why that's important. is because that determines how we answer a couple questions that help us interpret what he says here, particularly in verse 14 and 15. I want to give you two questions that help us clarify this request about forgiveness. There's two questions that we need to ask. Here's the first one. If we've been forgiven, why do we need to ask for forgiveness? That's a decent question, I think. If if we've been forgiven, why do we need to ask for forgiveness? Well, there's kind of two dimensions of forgiveness that we need to understand. There's two two ways we need to see forgiveness. Here's the first way, is that there is a legal forgiveness before God that's granted at salvation. 
It's justification, the, the, the moment that God declares us as righteous. It's a, a legal term. It's when we are justified before God by faith in Christ and we are forgiven of our sins. We are forgiven full and free from the penalty of sin. That's an important statement. We're forgiven full and free from the penalty of sin at salvation, justification. We are declared forgiven. Hear this in Scripture, and I want you to hear where this is. Acts 2.38, when Peter's preaching the day of Pentecost, what does he say? It says, Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't say, hey, repent and be baptized, and then uh, you're going to need to keep on asking for forgiveness and hope that comes each day. No, he says, you repent and believe for the forgiveness of sins. In Ephesians 1.7, in him talking about Christ. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. So we have forgiveness of our trespasses in him. Colossians 1, 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So again, we have forgiveness. It is settled. It's where we are. We're not trying to merit it. We're not trying to earn it. We're not having to go day by day and go, I hope I can be forgiven today. We have been forgiven. Colossians 2, 13 to 14, in that very next chapter, Paul writes, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. They're forgiven, right? Canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. It's settled, it's done, it's finished. It's complete, full and free. And then 1 John chapter 2, verse 12. John says this, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. They are forgiven. They're not hopeful to be forgiven. You're not wondering about that. They are, it's a settled state. So here's the truth. We have been forgiven as God's people. If you're in here, you're a Christian, you're a believer, you have been forgiven. It is a settled, settled state for the believer. It's a reality. You do not need to pray every day to be justified. You've already been justified. You've already been declared uh, righteous before the Lord. You've already been forgiven and saved from the penalty of sin. But when we think about that question, if we've been forgiven, why do we need to ask forgiveness then, right? We've been justified. We have forgiveness. There's the legal forgiveness. There's also the concept of a relational forgiveness with God. A relational forgiveness that is needed as we follow Christ daily. It's sanctification. It's God's process of conforming us into the likeness of Christ, our growth in holiness. It's this continual um, freeing from the, the power and, and the presence of sin in your life. So justification is freedom from the penalty of sin once and for all. Sanctification is a continued growth in holiness where you're freed from the power and the presence of sin. So that we understand that throughout life we experience the hindrance of our relationship with God as we battle sin, as we struggle through sin. Daily sin does not change our standing before God, right? Daily sin does not change our standing before God as though I sin and, oh, my salvation's gone. I hope I can get it back. I need to be justified again. No, it does not do that. Daily sin does not change our standing before God as a believer, but it can damage our fellowship with God, right? It can damage our fellowship. It can hinder our fellowship with God. That's why John writes in, in 1 John 1, 8 and 9, he says, if we have, 
or if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, right? So, so John is writing to believers. And, and this is the same John that in, in chapter two, verse 12 said, I'm writing to you because your sins are forgiven. They're, they are forgiven. But yet in chapter one, he says that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And as a matter of fact, he says, if you say you don't have sin, you're a liar. You deceive yourselves. The truth isn't in you. There is this relational dynamic in which we come before the Lord as believers and we seek reconciliation. We seek forgiveness of him. James 5.15, James, a similar statement where James is writing again. He's writing to believers and he says that he encourages us to go before the Lord and those who are sick and struggling. He says the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So he's talking about the committing of sins in the life of a believer. This continual ongoing need of reconciliation, relational forgiveness. What Jesus is doing is he's leading us to be a confessing, repentant people. That we are daily coming before the Lord, agreeing with the Lord, God, I am sinful. I want to draw near to you. Would you please cleanse me? Please cleanse me and make me more like Christ today. But we do not come to him daily and say, Lord, would you please justify me? Would you please save me? I've lost my salvation. That is settled. That is sure. That is secure. That justification, okay? So that's the first question in this statement is if we're forgiven, why do we ask forgiveness? Here's the second question that you need to ask about this statement. Is God's forgiveness of me contingent upon my forgiveness of others? That's the question that comes to my mind when I read verse 14 and 15. Is it, wait a minute. Are you saying that your forgiveness of me, Lord, is totally based on whether or not I forgive others? Is that what you're trying to tell me here? Is, is that what it means? Well, here's what you need to remember. There's nowhere in the New Testament that we find a text that would teach us that our forgiveness from the penalty of sin, our justification, is based on anything we do or don't do. It's not based on our actions, right? Our justification, our forgiveness is based solely on what? Grace, right? We're saved by grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, right? It's not based on what we do or what we don't do, right? So we don't have any understanding, any context in Scripture where we are saved by or forgiven based on our forgiveness of others. Justification is by faith alone. If you want some text to write down on that, look at Galatians 2.16, look at Ephesians 2.8.9, look at Romans 3.22-25. All those texts clearly teach that we are justified by faith alone. You can even add the whole of Romans 4 in there as well. And there's numerous other passages if you want to look. We're justified by faith alone. So what's going on here? There, there's two passages that will clarify this question for us. The, the first one is Matthew 18, 21 to 35. It's the, the parable of the unforgiving servant. Do you remember this parable? It, it's, it's Matthew 18, right? If you want to flip over there, you can flip over. We're not going to read the whole parable. But I would tell you this. If you back up in verse 15, 15 through 17 is where you had the classic teaching of Jesus. How do we respond when our brother sins against us? This is a precedent for church discipline and what that looks like to carry out church discipline and hold one another accountable and call one another to, to righteous living, right? 
And out of that teaching, you come down to verse 21, and Peter comes up to him and he says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. So he goes on to tell this parable, and he he tells the parable of the, the, the unforgiving servant, the one who owed a great debt. The debt was forgiven and then he walks out and he has those under him who who owe him. And instead of showing that same forgiveness, he comes down harshly with him and punishes them. And so Jesus in the parable says the man is rebuked. In verse 32, it says his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me and should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had had mercy on you? In anger, the master delivered him to jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, my heavenly father will do to you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Another passage that brings clarity is Mark eleven twenty five. In Mark eleven twenty five, we read this. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. Now, what is the context of both of these passages, Matthew 18 and Mark 11? Are they dealing with justification? The the context of forgiveness here is what? It is a horizontal or relational dynamic, forgiveness. That how many times should I forgive my brother, Lord? And he goes on to teach and give the parable. In Mark 11, if you have anything against someone, Go and forgive them. What do we find in Matthew 6 in our text today? Again, he's talking about among believers. He's talking to believers. It's not in relation to how you're forgiven in justification and justified. The context is important. Here's why. If we come to God seeking unadulterated fellowship and forgiveness from him, but yet we have not shown that same forgiveness of others, then we remain in sin and our relationship with God remains hindered. Does that make sense? So if I come before the Lord and I'm seeking to do what 1 John 1, 9 says, that I realize I'm living in sin. I, I commit a sin against my brother and so I come before him and I say, Lord, please forgive me and cleanse me of all unrighteousness. I'm still what 1 John says, but yet I do that while I'm bitter against this brother and I've sinned against him and I haven't sought forgiveness. Then there is still sin here that's going to affect this. Does that make sense? Make sense? So we need to understand that, that we're not dealing with justification. We're dealing with more of what you might say is a, a reciprocal relationship. The forgiveness that you have before the Lord is not contingent upon the forgiveness you have of others. What it is is that the forgiveness that you show to others is a reflection of the forgiveness that God has brought in, in your life. Forgiven people are forgiving people. That's the bottom line. Forgiven people are forgiving people. It is a mark of the believer. If I have been forgiven by the Lord, if I've been justified and forgiven by him, I will be forgiving of others. If I am not forgiving of others, it shows my great depth of ignorance and lack of understanding, the fact that God has forgiven me. It's a mark of the believer. If you're unwilling to forgive others, it should be a red flag in your life. Listen, God's forgiveness and ours is related. It is related. 
in that God's forgiveness is the precedent, the foundation, what compels our forgiveness of others. That's why we read in Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Or we read the same thing in Colossians 3.13, that we are to bear with one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. That's the relation. The relationship is that God has forgiven us, so we forgive others. It is not if you forgive everyone, then God will forgive you. That is not the relationship. So it brings a second question to mind. A second question we need to apply to our lives. How does my forgiveness of others reflect my own perception of my need for forgiveness from God? How does, how does my forgiveness of others reflect my understanding of my need for forgiveness from God? If I'm not a forgiving person, I think I've missed the understanding of my need for forgiveness. Final request we have here from our Lord in verse 13 is a request for the provision of our moral needs. A request for the provision of our moral needs. One was physical needs, one was relational, our relationship with the Lord and others, and then provision of our moral needs. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, he teaches us to pray. This is a request expressing a desire for godliness, a desire to remain faithful to the Lord and to avoid sin. It's the expression of the believer who has been freed from the penalty of sin and longs to avoid the power and the presence of sin in his or her life. It's the prayer of the one who longs for righteousness, who longs to live for the glory of God, the one who is no longer a slave to sin, as described in Romans 6, 19 and 23, but is a slave to righteousness, one who has been saved, been redeemed, and longs to glorify God, magnify God through the way he lives because he longs to be holy as the Lord is holy, and as Peter teaches in 1 Peter 1, 13 to 16. Now, when we look at this, the big question is this, what is the meaning of temptation? What's the meaning of temptation? Does God lead us into that? That, That's the question that comes about here. Lead us not into temptation. Would our God lead us into temptation? Well, when we look at the word, it it can be translated trial or temptation. Either way, and some of your texts could do that. Most translators render it temptation here because of the context. There's no definite articles. There's no the in the Greek. It doesn't say the temptation, the trial. So it's not looking onward down. It's not an eschatological view of looking forward and saying deliver us from the trial or the temptation that lies ahead. This is more of a a general temptation, a a general trial. And it's a desire that, that God would not lead us into those, but would lead us away from those and protect us from anything that might lead us into sin, protect us from that which is evil. That's what the prayer is. But we're still left with this idea and this question is, would God lead us into those things? Would he do that? I want to remind you of what we know from the whole of Scripture here that helps us understand this prayer request. Here's the first thing we need to remember is that God does use trials. He does use trials in our lives to sanctify us and bring him glory. He does use those things. So we understand that from Romans 5, 1 to 5. We read that passage and we come to the, the verse says, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. So God uses suffering in our lives. 
Or in James 1, 2 to 4, where we're told to count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Trials, testing, suffering, difficulty can be good for us. It can be used of the Lord. But what do we realize? We know that we're broken. We know that we're sinful. And we know that in the midst of those trials, in the midst of that suffering, we are prone to wonder what we re- or what we sang. We can certainly fall into sin in those moments. We can be tempted, but we still, nevertheless, we know that God uses trials. Here's the second thing we know, is that God does not tempt anyone. So God uses trials, he uses difficulty in our lives, but he himself does not tempt anyone. And we learn that in James 1, 13 to 15. James teaches this, it's just just down the, down the stream a little ways from what he just said. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. It's our desire, our flesh that tempts us. God does not tempt anyone, the scriptures say. We also know this from our study of Matthew. We know that the Spirit did lead Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. Do you remember that? That's the third thing we know. So first thing we know is God does use trials. The second thing we know is that God doesn't tempt anyone himself. But then third, we know that the Spirit did lead Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. When you read Matthew 4.1, this is what it says. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The Spirit led him in. Now, it's important to note, note the purpose and the agency here in that statement. We, you can go back and we talked about that in the sermon. We covered it. But just briefly, we need to understand the purpose that the Spirit led him into the wilderness to be tempted and the agency who was the one who carried out the temptation by the devil. So God did not do the tempting, but God did indeed lead him into the desert. He did indeed lead him into the wilderness. Okay, so this is helping to frame how do we pray this? What does it mean to pray? God, lead us not into temptation. The next thing we need to remember is that God directed Satan to test Job. Do you remember that? He directed Satan to test Job. So when Satan comes about from roaming the earth, what does he say in Job 1, 6 to 12? It says, the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? I mean, Satan wasn't like, hey, God, could I go and test Job? Satan's like, I've been around roaming the earth looking for some trouble. And so God's like, hey, have you thought about Job? You should go try him, right? God directed Satan to test Job. And then you have the rest of Job. The final thing we need to understand and remember from the whole scripture is this, is that God will not let us be tempted beyond our ability without providing a way out. He won't let us be tempted beyond our ability without providing a way out. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 to 13. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So God's not gonna lead you into something that is beyond your ability without providing a way out. There will be a way out. We need to be like Joseph and run that way out. 
So where does that leave us? Where does that leave us in this request? God, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It leaves us, we need to understand that, that God uses trials in our lives to, to sanctify us. And as broken people, we know that in the midst of these trials, we face temptation. We know that. But it doesn't mean that God is causing us to sin. So we come before him, we say, God, please lead us away from temptation. We're asking him, God, don't lead us into those things. It's, it's the one who understands his weakness or her weakness and understands the vulnerability and the, the frailty of his state and the, the tendency of the flesh. And says, God, please lead me away from that sin. Lead me far away from that sin. I want to stay away from it. This is in contrast to the one who says, oh, that sin, let me get right here. Let me get right beside it, right? And I'll just kind of skirt as close as I can, right around sin is right here, but I'm not sinning, right? That's not the spirit of this request. The spirit of this request is what, God, lead me far away from it. God, I desire godliness. I want to be like you. I want you to help me walk in godliness because I can't do it myself and I need you to lead me away from temptation and lead me towards you to magnify you. Deliver me, God, from evil. Deliver me from it, Lord. I want to be near to you. I am fully aware of my need for you, Lord. I need your help. I need your assistance. I need your protection to walk in righteousness. Lord, please deliver me from temptation. Deliver me from evil. Lead me not into temptation is the prayer. So here's the question I think that brings up to us. The application question. Do I foolishly subject myself to temptation and evil? Do I foolishly just subject myself to those things? Or do I have a longing to flee from it, to be away from it. God, don't put me in that position. Lead me away from it, God. I'm, I'm weak. I have sinful flesh. I still struggle, Lord. You saved me from the penalty of sin, but God, I still struggle with its presence. I still struggle and wrestle and battle with its power. God, lead me away from that temptation. Please, God, lead me away from it and deliver me from evil. Or do I just foolishly subject myself to it? Do I keep putting myself in situations where it's right there. Do I keep walking so close to the edge that, that all, all that has to happen is somebody just kind of walk by and go, Beek, and I'm in? Or am I fleeing and staying far from it? What is the desire of my heart? Is it a longing for godliness? Or am I trying to skirt and get close to sin? As we close out our time, this brings us to the end of the, the Lord's Prayer. And, and I want us to, to close a little differently today as we bring our time together and to, to end and think about the Lord's Prayer. I, I want us just to spend some, some minutes just praying it. I'm not going to ask you to recite it together. I want you just to spend time praying based on the model that the Lord has given us. He's taught us to pray like this, right? He's taught us to, to come before him and say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We pray for his kingdom to come and we pray his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then we, we turn to our daily needs and we ask God to provide for our physical needs. Lord, would you please give us our daily bread? And would you forgive us as we forgive our debtors? And Lord, please lead us not into temptation, but God, deliver us from evil. 
instrumentalists are going to come up and just play softly and before we close in our final song. And I just want you to just spend a few moments in prayer. Aaron, if you want to pray with your spouse or a friend that's with you or your family, you're welcome to do that. Let's spend a few moments in prayer based on the Lord's Prayer. And I'll close this before we sing together this morning. Let's pray together.